Welcome to the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast, making art work. We highlight how entrepreneurs align their artistry, passion, and vision to create and pursue opportunities to capture value in the arts. The views expressed by guests on the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the podcast or its hosts. The appearance of a guest on the podcast, the venture they represent, or reference to any product or service does not imply an endorsement or recommendation by the podcast or its hosts. The content provided is for entertainment and informational purposes only and does not constitute business advice. Here are your hosts, Andy Heiss and Nick Petrella. Welcome podcast listeners. My name is Andy Heiss. And I'm Nick Petrella. We have Debbie Wish with us today. She is a film and documentary producer and has produced The Price of Everything, which sold to HBO before it premiered at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival to rave reviews. It went on to receive global distribution and an Emmy nomination. Her most recent feature-length documentary is The Art of Making It, which explores the art world through the prism of emerging artists. It's a great film, and I encourage anyone in the visual arts or any art to watch it. Debbie has many more accomplishments than we can list here, so we'll link to her bio in the show notes. Debbie, thanks for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. As we begin, please let us know how you came to be a film producer and if your path was more traditional or unique. I would say that my path to becoming a filmmaker was more unique. Um, I spent 25 years working in the creative end of marketing and branding, mostly in New York, but I also lived in Hong Kong for five years. And um, in my late 40s, when I decided to become a filmmaker, it really emanated from a desire to make a film that was an ecosystem film about the art world. There were a lot of films that were done that were biopics or sort of more thematic, like a heist or, you know, an art theft or something. And no one had done a film that was an exploration of the entire ecosystem and sort of the lack of transparency and why art matters and sort of the urgency to support it. So my foray into becoming a filmmaker was really to make a film about the art world Mm -hmm. and artists, not to become a filmmaker. And then I got the bug (laughs) and um, I was involved in another film with a filmmaker named Lisa Vreeland about Cecil Beaton. But I would say on that film, I was sort of more peripherally involved. And then um, I went back to the drawing board because my first film was sort of about the treetops and um, artists kind of the relationship between art and money. And I felt like in a film, you have to make some big creative decisions and you can't include everything in all films. And most of them, when you're doing a verite film, which means you sort of take a camera and you try and find the story as you move along, um, 99% of the footage ends up on the edit floor. And in The Price of Everything, we didn't include emerging artists and sort of those struggling to make it. And I really wanted to do a film that looked at that aspect of the art world. So as the great critic Jerry Saltz once said, I went back into the fire um, to do it again. So I, my my path to all of this was completely nonlinear and untraditional. Yeah. 
And so the role of, of a producer varies quite a bit between uh, different media. Um, you know, a record producer is very different than a, a film or documentary pr- producer. Uh, can you clarify what the role of a producer in the film, in filmmaking and documentaries is? Yes. And thank you for that question. So interestingly enough, there's a lot of titles in the documentary and in the film world and in the TV world. And um, I worked more in the corporate world where in many ways people cared less about titles. And in the film world, you kind of slave away for a year, two, three, and you get these IMDB listings and people joke like all of you know, you spend two years, three years, and you just get one little listing. And a lot of filmmakers, especially documentary filmmakers, you're not making a lot of money. So the credits become very, very important. A producer is at the top of the food chain. And a producer could be someone who comes in and raises the money or gives the money. Um, but usually in, in the doc world and in the film world, the producer is kind of the one who's making big decisions. They're raising the money. They're pulling together the team. They have what's called final cut, which is sort of the final say on creative decisions. Executive producers are usually people who write a check or provide access or raise some money. Consulting producers might be people who come in to help with some access or some big decision making, associate producers to a lesser degree. So there's sort of this whole we call like the credit waterfall. Mm-hmm. But my on on the price of everything, I, I had um, two other producers on the art of making it. I produced it on my own which was a huge undertaking. And had there not been a pandemic, I probably would have brought on another producer. Um, But the producer's role is sort of everything. Yeah. It's like being the parent and being a single parent. If you're the parent, if you're the producer on your own and, and making a film, I can't emphasize enough is a collaborative process. So. Sure. Yeah. I had the final say, but there are a lot of voices I listened to. Right. Yeah. Right. What attracts you to certain projects over others? I mean, for me, I'm further along in my career and I'm in a position where I really won't work on projects that don't sort of touch my soul. Um, And I know that I'm a person who tends to be all in. And making these projects for any emerging filmmakers out there, I think it's the same as being an artist. You're either all in and you can't do anything else or you shouldn't be doing this. Um, I'm very interested in the arts and culture and also in many ways sports. And I look at them as kind of international languages. And I don't want to say they're more important than anything else. There's a lot of huge pressing issues in our time but it happens to be the thing that's interesting to me. Um, I'm working on a project right now with um, a very brilliant director producer named Katerina Otto Bernstein. And it's about the secret telegrams that were exchanged before the onset of world war II that show definitively who knew what Mm -hmm. and how, you know, world war II could have been averted and it's sort of through the prism of facts that had never been 
seen before. And, you know, I'm, I'm, my grandmother was a Holocaust survivor and it just struck a chord with me. And there's so many refugee crises in the world today. And we're sort of looking at like America's role in what's going on in Ukraine or what went on in Afghanistan. And it's sort of like history, what's past is prologue. And it just struck a chord with me and I'm all in. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think that, you know, when you're younger, you should work on whatever you can and get your feet wet and your hands dirty and learn as much as you can. And hopefully, you know, by the time you're in your late 40s, 50s, you can work on things that just hit a heartstring because um, like what you're doing, you have to be all in. The The monetary rewards aren't that high. Right. And, you know, it's it's a passion project of sorts. Sure. That's right. Yeah. And you alluded to this a little bit, but um, the process of making a documentary, like like The Price of Everything, can be very long and drawn out. Um, can you walk? But can you walk us through that journey from like the idea for the documentary all the way through to um, you know selling it to HBO in this case? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's a long process, and I would say that. In documentary, I've met a number of um, filmmakers where the process can be five to 10 to 15 years. Someone just showed me a project last week that I had looked at three years ago, and they had been seven years in at that point. Wow. Um, wow. I, when I became a producer, I didn't really know what I was doing, and I would still say my learning curve is steep, but what I did know how to do was to how to get things done. Mm. And a producer's role is pushing a project forward. So you have the conception, which is the idea. Mm -hmm. Some people will script it, which is tougher to do when you're doing a film where you're capturing events in real time. You know, if you're doing a film on an athlete at the end of their career, you have the beginning, middle, and end there so you can script it. But when you're doing something verite or an ecosystem film, you kind of just go into it almost like you might with a news story where you're kind of diving in and letting the story reveal itself and also being in a position to be nimble and pivot. I'm an independent filmmaker, which means kind of, I can do whatever the hell I want. I raise the money for my films and the people who are supporting it, trust me. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if you're making a film with a big studio, you have more voices in the room. So the process might be different, but so you have the idea and then you start putting together the team. I would say the first choice is usually the director and then, you know, in, the, in documentary, editors play a huge role in many ways. The story's made in the edit room. And then you bring in music and, you know, associates and color correct and graphics and all these people. And you can be editing as you're filming or you can have all the footage and then edit after the fact. It's usually more time efficient if you have the money to kind of edit as you go along mm. And then while you're doing that, you should start talking to sales reps and thinking about the marketing of the film. And then you submit to festivals and, you know, you do whatever you can to get into big festivals. Um, you know, today the market's changed and it's very much changed since the pandemic. So a lot of films are now going to streaming right. and they're not really films. Yeah. Um, 
on the price of everything, we were talking to HBO and then the deal happened right before Sundance. And then, you know, they announce it and it becomes a big to do. And we insisted on a theatrical run, which means you're actually in movie theaters. Um, So we did that and then went on to HBO. With the art of making it, we were in discussions with a lot of um, potential buyers. And then the world changed and everything went to streaming. And we were like, you know what? We made this film to be seen in front of live audiences. And I believe that our hearts synchronize when we share these moments together. And there's something magical and transcendent about being in the theater. And even if it was commercially a bad decision, we wanted to kind of go for it. And so we did an extensive festival run. And we're now going into a theater in New York Um, IFC, which is, I think, the best stock theater Mm -hmm. for independent film in New York. And we're starting June 29th. And it's so counterintuitive to the market, but I kind of didn't care. And the film's about emerging artists and disruption and the need for change. And we're looking into um, issuing the film as an NFT, which has never been done before. And having artists in the film create nfts that can be shared with the community which has also never been done before and um yeah yeah <laughs> so the process when you say talk you through the process there's no right way to do it the simplest films are usually like biopics or about <laughs> historic events where there's a linear path right and you kind of follow that path and you pre-sell the film but if you're a truly independent filmmaker which yeah. i am it doesn't work that way yeah i wasn't able to attend uh the event live at cleveland international film festival so i was i streamed it is it still available for streaming it's not it's going to be um truthfully we'd like to just issue it as an nft Mm-hmm. If that technology, and we're talking to people who are sort of at the height of it, um, it's not full on available yet. Yeah. So we may end up going on to Amazon and some other platforms beforehand. But I think in the case of this film, we're not going to sell it. We don't want to give up the rights. And um, yeah. we also don't want to get buried in clutter. I was reading the other day that people spend 20 minutes a day on Netflix, just trying to figure out what to watch. And I'm a big believer in curation. Um, We've had a lot of support for the film. And I mean, we're going to kind of pound away and throw some spaghetti on the walls and try different things because we want to retain creative control. And, you know, the film's done very well, kind of word of mouth, and by getting it in front of live audiences. So, yeah, yeah, might be well, a bad it, decision, a- but I think it's an interesting creative choice. And you know, we're in a time of right. huge upheaval and change in the industry. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, there's that's a great film, and our audience, I think, would would really yeah. enjoy watching it. Yeah, and by mid July, it will either be on an NFT or on Amazon. And I encourage everyone to visit our website, theartofmakingitfilm.com. Follow us on Instagram. If you're in New York, come to IFC. And um, we also, we are very um, active on social media platforms. And I have a ton of amazing students 
um, working on the project also. So it's it's out there. Yeah. And we'll link to all those in our, our notes. Yeah. Thank you. You know, there's a couple things you said there that, that I think are really interesting. Um, the, the, going back to, you know, the first film or the first documentary you said you made um, and how you, you, kind of, you kind of saw where you wanted to go and kind of did a lot of those um, things simultaneously. Like you said, the, you know, getting a director on board and then editing as you went and thinking about the marketing and pitching it and that sort of thing as you were going along. Whereas I can imagine... Um, you know, some people are just like, okay, we got to do this and then we'll do this and then we'll do this, which would make that process more drawn out. Is that kind of what you were saying in terms of how you approached it versus? So I think there's two things. I've never worked with a big studio, um, but I have a lot of friends who do Mm -hmm. and they have multiple projects going on at once and they may finish something early because they've slotted it in for a specific you know, theatrical or streaming time. Time, When you're most people who I know who are independent filmmakers, if they have the funds raised and they're in a position to, they're going to wait till they're happy with the film and lock it. Um, Sometimes you're timing it based on festivals. Like we wanted to be in the Hamptons because we filmed a lot there and then go into Doc NYC. So we timed it on that. Um, we didn't know a film like Sundance was virtual the last two years by chance, which wasn't ideal. I feel so badly for the filmmakers who launched that way because it's just very different. Like you kind of make decisions with the best information you have, but you have much less leverage, but a lot more freedom as an independent filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And then it sounds like it may be, maybe a little premature to ask you about this, but how would, how would the NFT thing work? Would, so if I wanted to watch it, I would buy a token to, that would give me access to it or. Yes. Okay. And your token. So we are going to sell, we already have an NFT. And if you go onto our website, yeah. we're working with a company called Lobus, which is very focused on artists' rights, okay. um, which is something, it's, important. it's sort of yeah. a message in the film sure. too, like creative control, yeah. which is part of why we're doing it. It just felt dumb to give it all up for a crappy deal with a streamer where the film's not going to be seen the way we want it seen anyways. Like we might as well try something inventive. I mean, yeah, and I'm Canadian and my dad always says you want to skate to where the puck is going. It's definitely going in that direction. Like there's a lot of upheaval in the entertainment world right now. And many ways there aren't even films unless you're Tom Cruise. Like you're, you know, we're so fortunate to actually be going into a theater. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, so you could go and you buy a token, Mm -hmm. which is the NFT, and you actually get an NFT. And in our case, it might be worth something because it's going to be the first film NFT. And you pay 0.01 ETH, which is about $30. And you would own access to the film, plus, plus, plus. You'll be invited to events. You'll have access to NFT drops. You'll, you know, might be invited to museum openings or studio visits, but they're going to be utilities involved that create a community with shared values. And I'm looking at including in that, you know, different 
podcasts sure. and you know magazines and major museums and art galleries might be involved, but something that might be a curation of culture that begins with this film. Yeah, very cool. That it's makes generous. sense. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. And also, I mean, in in the whole NFT world, there's a ton going on in it. And I was um, actually at a conference for Forbes in Abu Dhabi, and I listened to a brilliant woman named Lori Hotz, who started Lobus with, um, she has a partner, and she said something that just sort of struck a chord with me and was that, look, we don't know where we're going, but we know that the risk is not getting going. That the whole Web3 thing, yeah. we don't know what's yeah. going to happen. And it's very nascent. You know, it's an early stage right now. But it just seems to be where the puck is going. And, you know, it just felt like a smart thing to do for this film. And there wasn't a lot of risk involved because everyone had been paid on the production. Sure. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. And we recently launched a uh, a release a uh, a few episodes with the guys at Arts Block art, or Art Blocks excuse me and they do the same thing with uh generative art on uh the Ethereum blockchain as well so that's it's all fascinating yeah it's fascinating and it's there's so many smart people and so much money in the field right now that it's just going to keep evolving and improving and carbon footprints will get smaller and um yeah yeah that's cool it is cool for young filmmakers listening, what would you suggest they do to better ensure their films will be produced? <laughs> I think that for if I was, well, I actually tell this to all young filmmakers, get some skills that are marketable and saleable. Learn how to edit or make a deck or do posters because it's really hard to actually get film funding and get them made. I mean, if you have some connections, um, you work them. You can apply for grants at play, and you can also um, get your film into programs like the IDA, so you can accept um, grant money and create a hybrid structure so the film's for profit, non for profit. But I think you also you've got to be out there meeting people. You never know who you're going to connect to and who's going to support you. It's really hard. I think it's the same as being an artist. Like there's so much talent out there and there's a lot of content right now. There's also a lot of bad content that's sort of algorithmically dictated. Um, and and I also think it's nonlinear. Like someone said to me, how do you make a film? I said, you make a film. It's like, how do you paint a painting? You, you paint a painting. You just got to keep pushing till you get it done. And to know beforehand that like you'll hear these Cinderella stories, but for most people, it's a lot of slogging and hard work. Yeah. How has your experience in marketing and branding informed the production of films and documentaries that you've, you've done? I think it, it sort of in a nutshell, it's made, I'm an out of the box thinker. And to be good at marketing, I was never the marketing person who was sitting there looking at spreadsheets. I was the one coming up with ideas that sort of took a product from, you know, a T-shirt to a branded T-shirt that had a whole story behind it. Um, So I think I knew how to make stories and I knew how to market things and sort of package things and sell an idea to a funder, but also visually package it. Yeah. And it's probably 
you know, I wouldn't recommend it for anyone to take that path. But I, I do think that people who switch careers or move into different fields in many ways have advantages in this era of sort of multi hyphens and where you're expected to wear many hats. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't look at it through a traditional linear prism. Yeah. So, so maybe like uh, positioning and identity or you, you, you creating that story, the place, uh, the meaning, the value telling and, and sharing that, being able to package that in a way that people can understand. And also to respond to the market and to the market changes. Like we edited this film and, and we even filmed probably 30% of it against the backdrop of an unprecedented pandemic. Right. And you know, I was in a position to pivot and be nimble, part of it because we had most of the funding raised, but also because I've spent my whole career doing that. I think if I was someone who was like A to B to B to C and yes, like tunnel vision, this is how you get it done. um, It would have been pretty scary. And I think if you look at a lot of the films that were made during the pandemic, most of them have kind of struggled to figure out what to do and how to be seen and noticed. Whereas, I mean, it's sort of a lucky, it's not lucky because the pandemic was horrible, but it was a good thing for me that I had 30 years of learning to react to a market and market changes. That's what I was sort of trained to do. Yeah. And those skills are transferable. obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really important to remember for any emerging filmmakers out there. There's so many skills. I used to write speeches when I first moved to New York and I was working in marketing because I always loved writing. And I found a good sort of side gig writing speeches for people in the financial world. And it was a great skill. Mm. You know, because I now have to speak all the time, but plus I kind of learned how to be concise with language and focus on big messaging. Um, I worked for many years on a lot of cosmetic and luxury brands. I learned about how to shoot stills and how to create flyers and posters, like all those things. I think a lot of producers are probably not as in the weeds as I am on all those details, but it's kind of what I spent most of my career doing. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it wasn't as unique. Well, maybe it's unique, but it was just an easy trans uh, transfer for you. I, I I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I figured it out and I think most producers who are successful, you kind of figure out how to get things done. You push the envelope forward. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Visit artsentrepreneurshippodcast.com to learn more about our guest and how you can help support artists, the arts, and this podcast. Podcast.